1: You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make living people so much more than our algorithmically derived behavioral profiles. This is where the conscious beats the automatic and intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human, coming to you alive from Civic Hall, safe haven for America's most dangerous population—those who seek to do good. Playing for Team Human today, artist, journalist, and author of *Brothers of the Gun*, Molly Crabapple, and musicologist, DJ, artist, and writer Jace Clayton. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Welcome. So I used to be valuable and even beloved for my ability to talk about the future to people of the present. To talk about what digital kind of hypertexty stuff was gonna come to us. And to try to make it sound okay you know, as a, a some expression of, of human agency. And now I find my main function, the main value I have, is to tell people what it was like before digital technology ever came around or what it was like in those early days. And I've been thinking a lot about the very early time, the, the early cyberpunk era of digital technology and what it was what it was that seemed possible. Digital technology really emerged at the same time as a lot of really weird, fun stuff, from fantasy role-playing games, which were like a new kind of theater, to quantum physics and the dancing Wooly Masters and the crack in the cosmic egg and the Tao the of physics. It was this moment where everything and every... Every corner of the world seemed to be telling us that reality itself was a designer phenomenon. That reality is something that we are constructing in real time as a consensual hallucination between us all. And even, I mean, here in civic hall, even patriotic young Americans that we were, we thought that these values were embedded in the Constitution of the United States that they understood that reality is being recreated and recreated and iterated and evolved and that this is something that human intervention is required for because it's humans who are envisioning where we're going to take this whole this whole thing this whole uh, Megillah. and no it's not that technology was somehow intrinsically liberating or that the digital revolution would necessarily yield all these great things, but that the digital revolution, the closest thing we had to these sensibilities, the closest thing we understood to what was coming were psychedelic drugs. It really was. That's why I wrote this book, Siberia, back then, where I was arguing that the reason why Intel and Apple and Northrop Grumman and every major technology company were busy hiring acid heads to work in their R&D, which they all were, was because psychedelics people were kind of the only ones who were used to hallucinating a reality that they would then go ahead and build. That these were the only people who weren't afraid to construct reality in real time, them and kids. And of course, kids were great at digital technology at the beginning. Again, because of that, that lack of fear. But what Timothy Leary, one of the big uh, uh, advocates of LSD, a, a famous psychedelic, um, what he argued at the time was that the only way to really use something like that effectively is if you have the right set and the right setting. Set and setting. Set, he meant your mental state. You know, what are you intending to do here? What's your framework? What's your sort of psychological frame on this, your mental frame? And you're setting, really, the environment. What environment are you doing it in? So if you're right, if you're going to take a psychedelic drug, but you're going to do it, you know, at, in the middle of a crime scene or where there's dying people, it might be a bad trip because oh, this is kind of ucky What's happening around me? But technology was part of this larger social movement that had not just a psychedelic strain, but a countercultural strain, a, a humanist strain. A self-improvement strain, but a social improvement strain. The problem was the only part of this whole renaissance-y revolution thing that was happening, the only part of it that was compatible with the market was the tech. The digital tech was actually, this is not a digital revolution. This was a major, broad, uh, uh, holographic renaissance of unprecedented magnitude and horizontal Uh, uh, horizontally unlimited, but it was thin-sliced into this one thing that had market value. And that was tech and dot-com and selling and all that. And we started to think of, oh, this is what's happening. We followed the thread that was being fed. Now, those of us who were in the early part of it were kind of thinking, oh, shoot, this is bad. This is like when all the business people show up at the Grateful Dead show. It's like, oh, my God. Are they really deadheads, or are they just faking it on the weekend, sort of like seeing Google at uh, Burning Man with their own installation or something? God bless. All are welcome. And dot-com boom happened, and when the dot-com crash happened, a lot of us were kind of glad. We thought, oh, good, that awful moment is kind of over. The net has fought off this kind of bacterial infection, and now it can return to our social roots and blogger and fun websites and all these things started to come up. And it seemed really interesting. Then, and we can't underestimate it, 9-11 happened. 9-11 happened, and it seemed to be a slap in the face for everyone who said the fringes can decide reality. Look what happens when you give too much power to the decentralized fringes. Well, they're going to take planes and crash them into your centralized buildings is what's going to happen. It was a slap in the face, not just to, you know, the American business system and the psyops and the CIA and all, but to open culture. You know, it's as if American culture reached this maximum openness on September 10th. And then we went for surveillance capitalism. Right? Then we had two arguments for surveillance capitalism. One was to save the stock market, and the other was to save our asses from those scary terrorists. So we got the sentence setting of the advertiser. Leading to what? Behavioral design and persuasive technology. We got the set and setting of the stock market guy pushing for algorithmic trading and uh, ultra-fast stock markets. We get the set and setting of the military pushing digital technology towards drone warfare. And we get the set and setting of the politician who pushes digital technology towards targeted propaganda. So as I see it, America is living in a kind of a psychedelic substrate made of digital technology, but we're having a bad trip. And that's because we don't realize, we can't remember, we can't recall or retrieve the basic truths that we're living in a media environment that gives us a creative capacity over reality. I genuinely believe we figured that out in the 60s and 70s. We are creating reality in real time. See what's going on out there? We are creating that. We are actively creating that. We're making this thing, which is why it looks the way it does. So we need to get a little bit of psychic discipline. You know, there's so little hope right now. That's part of the appeal of the right, of Trump right now. When they look at our facts, at our science, they look at our science the way we look at big data or something. All right, so yeah, that's telling me about the past. Oh, so, you know all that stuff. But that doesn't say who I really am. That doesn't say who we really are. We can hope. I'm not saying, uh, you know, that's part of the appeal of, of, of climate denial as well. But there's a way to bring a little bit of hope back into what we're doing, back into our, into our wonkiness. You know, it does seem stronger than, than succumbing to our leftist kind of fact-based limitations. You know, but the original strain, the original strain of cyberpunk ethos, those who see in technology and media a way to express rather than rather than repress human creativity, we're still here. Economic and social collapse just make us all the more real and present as we all have to look for alternative ways and paths to express ourselves. And the people we've had on this show lately, Bo Burnham, Show that, wow, you can, you can use YouTube and become something way better than some, you know, Justin Bieber awful celebrity. You can use it to actually create work that makes us interrogate ourselves. Heather Dewey-Hagborg, who's using DNA to create models of what people look like. Uh, uh, Lauren McCarthy, who's investigating what is it like to have a human-powered Alexa. Uh, Damian Williams, uh, Stokko uh, Troncoso at, at Peter P. Foundation. Erin Barnes, who I'm sure you guys know who does uh, In Our Backyard. I mean, there are a lot of people who are looking at these technologies, today especially in the failure of the digital economy. And it's a failure, the digital economy. In the failure, the wake of the failure, they're looking at these things. They're looking at that failure as fertilizer for these new ideas. And, of course, everyone here at Civic Hall, you know, who reify what it means to be human by looking for ways to express and implement a civic reality of shared responsibility, economic equality, and universal human flourishing. We can do this. And I really am only thinking about this because over the last week I've spent uh, deeply immersed in, in the work of our two guests today, Molly Crabapple and Jace Clayton. Molly Crabapple, our first guest. She's an artist and writer in New York. She's the author of two books, Drawing Blood and Brothers of the Gun with Marwan Hishan. Her reportage has been published in the New York Times, New York Review of Books, the Paris Review, Vanity Fair, The Guardian, Rolling Stone, and many more. She's got art in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art. Isn't that just wild? Um, Molly has reported on the Ferguson riots, Guantanamo, recently in Puerto Rico, Syria, immigration detention centers, courtrooms, jails, rendering injustice with a human hand. Please welcome Molly Crab Apple. Thank you so
3: much Thank for having you. me.
1: Thank you for being on Team Human. Um, I thought the one way, a fun way to start would just be for people to see just a drop of your work, which is now, I mean, there are these sort of time lapsed versions of some of what you do. So um, they're just this quick video on, on uh, money bail.
2: Khalif Browder was 16 years old when he was accused of stealing a backpack by a man who changed his story several times. Khalif spent three years in jail, 80% of that time in solitary confinement. He received regular beatings by corrections officers. Eventually, he committed suicide. Khalif was never convicted of a crime. He always said he was innocent, even when pressured to take a plea deal to get out early. And after three years, the district attorney's office dismissed the charges when it became clear they had no case. So how did this happen? How did a 16-year-old boy convicted of no crime spend three years in jail? It all started because prosecutors demanded a teenager accused of petty theft pay $3,000 in bail. Knowing it would pull him out of his young life, trap him in jail, even force him to plead guilty despite his claim of innocence, they demanded totally unnecessary and out of reach bail from young Khalif, jailing him. Khalif's story is not just tragic, it's an outrageous injustice. And there are far too many other stories of injustice like this around the nation. Hundreds of thousands are pulled out of school, pulled out of their jobs, pulled out of church, pulled out of their families and communities, trapped in an oppressive and racist criminal justice system by prosecutors, judges, bail bondsmen, and everyone else who profits from it. Mass incarceration, the United States imprisoning more people than any country on earth, it starts with money bail.
1: For the radio audience, they should know, first you can can go online, go to teamhuman.fm and see... The uh, animation that went with that, but what we were looking at is a hand drawing uh, what's being described, almost in the style of a courtroom reporter, except with this kind of beautiful pen and ink, and uh, the 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 combination. Well, the retrieval really is the thing that's so fascinating to me in this the the retrieval of a hand painting something. <laughs> this, the, this this is serious. This real. I guess the, the I was hoping you could share with us, what is, it, what is it like to approach reporting and journalism as an artist? Well, I'd say the first thing, and my, my stop-motion
0: animations about the prison industrial system are one aspect of my work, but most of my work is actually going places with my sketchbook, and using my sketchbook kind of like a photojournalist might use their camera, you know, using my sketchbook to capture reality. And the best thing about being an artist who's a reporter is being constantly underestimated, which means that you can go all sorts of places and see all sorts of things that people never, ever would allow you to do if they ever thought you were a threat. But artists, artists were not threatening.
1: Right. So the the pen doesn't look, or the paintbrush, whatever, doesn't look as threatening to them as a camera lens, say.
0: Exactly. So, for instance, I was, uh, I was just on the U.S.-Mexican border covering uh, the basically the theft of children by our government and the uh, disgusting caging of immigrants and people seeking asylum. And I was able to go to so many places just because I didn't have a camera, just because it was me and my pen and my paper. It was like a lockpick.
1: It is, though. It's it's an an exploit in that sense. But what you're doing is retrieving really old tech. I mean, there's something that feels almost anachronistic about... I mean, it's part of the beauty of it. Something anachronistic about drawing. Uh, I hate to even call it horror, but it is horror sometimes. Well, it's true. I mean,
0: you know, before photographers had kind of the dibs on the reproduction of reality, you know, that was our art. That was our job as artists. Artists drew all the major conflicts. You look at someone like. Goya that he is more of a father of war photojournalism than anyone else and so that was what we did but then for a while there was the idea that um photography was better because photography was supposed to be real and photography is fast and it's efficient and it's real and it tells the truth and art is slow and subjective and it's fake and you can't use it to prove anything but I think uh, for a few reasons one of which is that um the idea that a photograph is an essentially truthful document has been so challenged because of a number of reasons, art has been coming back as a journalistic tool.
1: Right, because it's as if, well, they can snap a picture of anything. It could be someone in a, that one moment they were doing something different than they would normally do, or it was just doctored and put together anyway. But the thing that makes the, the drawings, and I want to get to in a bit some of these, the, the ones from, from the new book, is that there's so much time compressed into a painting you know that's it's it could be could take a week to draw you know to paint one of those things that it's it forces a kind of honesty that this is the expression of a human being who spent time there and is now spending all this time to render what she really felt and saw
0: exactly i mean the work is obvious in drawing the hand, the muscle, the blood, the effort is something that's completely obvious. And I think that, what is it, like there are enough smartphones for like half of the population of the earth to have a smartphone right now? I mean, at this moment when photography is so utterly ubiquitous, when in so many parts of the world there is no mystery to uh, taking a selfie, drawing still is something rare. Drawing is still something that many people are only drawn once in their entire lives, if that
1: well, and the drawings also, it's funny, with everybody doing selfies all the time, the drawings, for me, they feel like you're teaching us how to how to see, how to look. Do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, because when
0: you take your selfie, right, you're like, click, 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 pout, like, raise my eyebrows, how do I look good? But you're not actually, I mean, there's such a glut of photos. I think, like, there's more photos taken in a month than there were in the first hundred years of photography. So... There's, no, um, there's not necessarily any time spent looking at photos. I mean, of course, there can be. Like there are, this is in no way, a way me demeaning the genius and the courage of um, so many of my photojournalist colleagues at all. But there's a lot of photography, a lot of it on my phone, that's just like someone going like click, 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 and pouting at the camera. Whereas when you draw something, you have to look at it. You have to stare at it. You have to break it down into planes and angles. Your, your eye, like your human eye, has to look. And it has to be like, how does that person's skin look? What is the exact shade of the shadow on the side of their nose? And that's how you translate something. That's how you take something from the 3D meat space and you put it you know, on top of this like flat sheet of paper but through that looking. And I think that calls for other people to look, too, just that carefully.
1: But also the sense of, of human investment in it. You know, with photos now, even with articles now, I find I'm... i this is a terrible confession, but when I'm online or reading something, I'm looking at things as long as I have to until I can wipe, dismiss them. I don't read to read. I read to be allowed to dismiss the thing. You know, do I have to read? Uh, all right, I know that. Okay, climate change, yeah, yeah, one of those. Okay, blah, 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 until you get to one, all right, well, this one I'm going to have to sit and actually read. And All right, now I'll get as if And photos have that because you wipe, 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 wipe and wipe. You come to one of your pieces and there's so much humanity and time invested in it. You can't swipe it away. Do you know what I mean? It's almost demands. It demands attention on some other level.
0: Even though I, I just want to say, photojournalists are the people most likely to get shot in the head during wars because right. they actually have to you know, be on the front line. They can't just be back uh, you know, sitting at their hotel room hiring right. like some local guy to feed them information. Like, no, for sure. I'm not yeah. dissing, I'm not dissing but, but, what they do. What, but I'm, what it's I'm commenting on is. It's not obvious, this, that's why. Right.
1: But there's an intervention that you're making by take. you could have taken 1,000 pictures in the time that you're going to make one drawing.
0: Absolutely, yes. And the singularity big, of the image.
1: Right, and that's because you're investing something else. You're interrupting. You're interrupting a news process that's become ubiquitous. That's become we've become desensitized to it on a certain level.
0: Exactly, and you're taking this super old school technique. I mean, I used to ask myself. I used to. I was always really frustrated with the idea that artists should just kind of stay inside our studios and sort of self-plagiarize the most commercially successful thing we ever did until we died, which is generally kind of the model for, you know, success in the fine art world now. And But then part of me was, I wanted to, you know, go outside the studio. I wanted to go and see the real world and history as it happened. And that's kind of why I got into journalism. But a part of me, I was like what does art actually have to say? What is the point of what I'm doing? I know why I draw. I draw because it's my compulsion. I It's like doing, you know, huffing glue probably. That, you know, it's just what I do. But why is it important to draw? And that was always something I, I would think. I was like, is this, is this like whittling? Do I just have the sort of a boat carving habit? I mean, like, what's the, is this like, I don't know, hand-weaving, like, sort of nubby cloth? Like, why am I doing this, you know? Am I, doing, am I doing a bad version of something technology could do better? And then the conclusion I came to was exactly what you said, that no, no, there was an interruption and there was value um, to the fact that a human, essentially with a stick of compressed ash and um, some wood pulp, was reproducing their own reality.
1: Right, and then when you do it, what what does fidelity mean to you in that kind of situation? In other words, fidelity to that situation as an artist. It's not just the fidelity of what it looked like, but kind of the fidelity to what it to something else.
0: I work in a number of different ways, and this is um, very often always a a balance between the constraints of my situation and you know what I want to create. For instance, uh, one of my most famous uh, journalistic series was in Guantanamo Bay, and that was a place that photographers could not capture, because the military has a series of security guidelines that sound reasonable at first, but once you start doing all of them, you find that the only place that your camera can point to is the floor. It, it's a, a sort of veiled form of censorship they do. But art could draw around that, and I had a variety of techniques for doing that. but. When I was working in Guantanamo Bay, I was literally being hauled around by a press officer on a sort of you know, Potemkin village tour of the prisons. And I'm desperately trying to capture. I'm like, how do I capture this force-feeding chair that they're showing me? How do I get what this looks like? How do I capture the, the, the body posture of the soldier? Because I, I can't capture his face. That's censored. How do I get this shackle? And it was just drawing so fast and getting things as fast And as sparely as I could while getting their essence. When I I draw in my studio, it's a different thing. One of my my favorite pieces was a piece I did in in Gaza. And I was there in 2015, um, about a year after uh, Operation Protective Edge, when Israel uh, massacred a bunch of people and uh, destroyed a lot of neighborhoods and a lot of civilian areas. And... I uh, took I took photos when I was there. I'm a terrible photographer. Uh, I think that maybe helps my art because I never feel like my photography is gonna say some wonderful thing my art can't. My photography says nothing except uh, giving me a, something to draw from. And I was in Shujaiya, and Shujaiya is a neighborhood that wasn't just bombed. It had tanks go through it that shot it up, and then it had bulldozers, so it's a flattened neighborhood. And uh, people are living in that neighborhood anyway. And there's a blockade on Gaza. And I saw these guys and they were construction workers and they were taking the rebar from a building that had been bombed. And anyone who's ever seen rebar after a building has been bombed knows what it looks like. It looks like snakes. It looks like an evil and living thing. You can, it, it looks violent, right? And so these guys, there's like a big thing of this twisted evil looking rebar and they're taking it and with hand tools, they're straightening it in the shadow of this you know, decimated building. And if I had one truth that I wanted to get about Gaza, it was that. It was that these people that were so damn defiant that they were straightening the twisted rebar of a bombed-out building they used to live in so that they could rebuild again. And so that's what I drew.
1: I mean, did, you've been on a really interesting journey. You know, when when I first met you, you were doing comics. And um, the deceptively, uh, 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 I don't even know if I read the word, uh, uh, subversive... Uh, Sketchies, I mean the, the the sketchy salons you did, which were kind of like you'd hire you'd get hired with a couple of other people to like go to a party, and what teach them to draw.
0: So back in the day, I used to be a burlesque dancer and naked model. That's how I supported myself in school and a bit after. And I got to meet the coolest men and women of my life doing that. The smartest toughest, most brilliant underground artists that I've ever had the privilege to meet who taught me so much. And a lot of them worked as artist models. But when they were an artist model, they were just like a naked guy or a girl. It wasn't about them. It was about like showing a rib cage. And it's really important to learn to draw a rib cage. You know, nothing wrong with that. I, I certainly, you know, spent a lot of time drawing rib cages too. But I wanted something that also paid tribute to my friends as individuals. So when I was 22, I started an event that is still going on now, pretty much without my intervention, and um, which was hiring underground performers to model while they presented themselves exactly how they wanted to, whatever that meant to them. And I started in a bar, like a dive bar in Williamsburg that my friend owned with uh, a few of my best friends. Kind of took over the world. It was still going. I haven't, I haven't been involved with it for about... How long, man? Uh, seven or eight years, maybe? But it's not every day that your, your pet project that you started at 22 with no money or know-how, like, keeps going um, 12 years later.
1: And it was, I mean, to me it seems subversive, because people would go, oh, we're going to go to some party and get to see, you know, naked people or whatever and draw them. But then they're confronted by not just some naked body, but here's this human being.
0: Like like a tableau vivant,
1: right? And then, it, I mean, the, so did you ever find that people transformed by the experience, like just some you know kind of closed minded person going to this thing and then kind of seeing the world in a different way afterwards? It seems like a performance art experience that could be transformative to certain well, a lot people. of
0: people. You know what it did do? There were so many. I mean, the classic story, right, is, like, young people coming from all around the country and trying to find themselves in New York, right? Like, 18-year-olds who maybe, like, come from a repressed background or the suburbs or, you know, maybe, like, a fundy Christian place. And they go to New York and they get to be their true selves. And so many young people found that community in Sketches. So many young people. And when I think about, like, what I'm profoundly grateful for, it's really just a crew of uh, young men, but especially young women, especially awesome young women who found a place in New York where they could be like, where they could do their art, where they could be um, respected, where they could draw amazing things, where they could hang out with like sexy, subversive underground performers and where they could have a community of of people. And that I think was perhaps one of the most transformative things it did for a lot of people.
1: And then, I mean, those of us in your in your extended circle then watched you get. I think the, the Guantanamo was the first. Was that the first big sort of drawing journalism story?
0: Uh, well, I had I had drawn a lot during Occupy, but right. um, and I had kind of on the strength of an article that I did about my arrest at Occupy, I right. had, I got in a vice column. And at first, I was just like writing personal essays, which I I I, I still love. I still think they're some of the best stuff I've ever done. But I was able to uh, talk my way into getting press clearance to visit Guantanamo, and when I speak, and that was with what publication? I that was, was with Vice. Vice. That was Vice. Vice basically they trusted this. me and they gave me my platform early on, and I'm forever grateful to them. And I pretty clearly got the clearance because, as I said, artists are underestimated.
1: Right. And then you went, but then you you came back with drawings, but you also wrote a big piece. Was yeah. that for Vice? Yeah, I wrote like that a was, feature and. That kind of caught fire in a way. I mean, everybody I know read that and it, and was so moved by this. Uh, I mean, it was interesting. I hadn't thought of you as a writer writer until then. I mean, was there something about about that particular situation that that kind of unleashed a, a different journalist, a different writer from, out of you? Well, I
0: mean, I had done a you know a bunch of viral articles before that, um, but I think that it was the the challenge, right? I mean, Guantanamo Bay is, it's kind of one of the most evil and famous institutions in, in America. It's where our inability to be good comes smack dab up against our proclivity to be nice, was how I always put it. It's a place where they, you know, force feed people who are locked up forever, but they let them choose the flavor. It's true, they do. And so when you have a subject like that, it demands something of you. And I, that, that's why, I mean, I had wanted to be an, a writer when I was going to school. I even, I wrote this terrible, terrible novel when I was in high school. That was about time travel. It was very bad. Um, fortunately it was never put online, but I, yeah, yeah, I have, I have a copy and I like every few years I read it just to make sure it, it was bad. And it is, <laughs> it stayed just as bad. But um, kind of what happened was because, you know, because I I did work in comics because I, you know, had been a naked model because a lot of my early stuff was about like nightclubs and sexy girls and girls that wear feathers. Um, I guess I had kind of bought into that box that society puts you in when you're a woman that does stuff like that, which is that you're not smart and that you're not clever and that you don't have rights. You don't have the right to write about serious subjects. And um, Occupy was really what had gotten me out of that. But Guantanamo was um, my first you know, opportunity to tackle a subject like that. And you know, I worked my ass off, right?
1: Right. I mean, those of us who read it, though, read it as this, oh, shoot, this is like Pulitzer Prize winning journalism. I mean, and, and for those of us that knew you, it's weird. I know that awful things were happening to the people in Guantanamo. But those of us that knew you, we're thinking, Oh my God, she's gonna have PTSD just from visiting this place, just from being there, you know. And it's one once removed from the actual tortures that are being done to people. But we're all the Oh my God, you went there. You really were there. You, I mean, or what are they gonna, you know? Even the, what are the guards gonna do? Or and you, you, you flourished, you know. I
0: I got my start in the sex industry. Like I was never. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, just because I did comics, I wasn't like particularly um, a delicate flower. I never have been. <laughs> Um, I uh, Perhaps maybe that's a, a better training for uh, covering war zones yeah. and prisons than, um, I don't know, getting, getting a master's in creative writing.
1: Right. No, I mean, and then you've been embedded in the, the hottest spots on the planet, you know, between Guantanamo and, and Aleppo.
0: I've, no, I've and, never been to Aleppo, I have okay. to say. I went over the border into Syria, but it was only for a day. But my, my piece in Aleppo, that was um, Marwan, my collaborator, took those photos.
1: But the sketches, I mean, so so, I mean, some of the sketches from Brothers of the Gun are in the Vanity Fair article, right? So here, i, I hate calling them sketches, you know. I guess because you got miss of sketchy, I always want to call them. But these are these are kind of paintings, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, they're paintings, <laughs> they're watercolors.
1: Yeah. So there's this one. There was another one. I, we
0: picked out... This was uh, girls um, going to collect water in uh, eastern Aleppo, which was held by rebels at the time. And these photos... uh, So, and speaking of the strange intersections between very physical drawing by hand and the internet, I spent the last few years... I mean, the book came out, like, a few months ago, but I want to say I spent the last four years uh, working with the most amazing collaborator I've ever been able to, who I, I met when he was living in Raqqa, which, if you, for people familiar with um, Middle Eastern current events, was uh, the sort of. Uh, capital the self-declared capital of the cosplay caliphate that isis was running for a while and uh, my friend uh, marwan he it was his hometown and he stayed after the invasion and he did undercover journalism which was something that if he had been caught he would have ended up in uh, an execution video that would have been put online as a warning for others and i got to know marwan uh, through twitter and we stayed in touch for for about a year on just twitter and WhatsApp being bounced from a satellite that was in Raqqa to wherever I was in the world. And while we eventually did a book together, Brothers of the Gun, our first collaborations were stuff like this, where he would send me surreptitious photos that he had taken, photos he had taken at indescribable risk, and I would draw from them. And he would write captions for those drawings. We did it from Raqqa and also from Mosul, which was occupied by ISIS, and then later from from East Aleppo. And I remember when I first saw the stuff from Raqqa, the only images you got of it were uh, from ISIS propaganda, basically. And he uh, was intent on showing all of the things that you weren't supposed to see, like the kids digging through the trash for something to sell, or the bread lines, or the messed up wounded fighters, or a guy an isis traffic cop checking out chicks stuff stuff like that we wanted to do photo we wanted to do images that were against uh, the cliches of war and i remember i saw them and i was like this is what i'm not supposed to see this Mm. this is seeing across borders
1: i mean and that kind of brings me to the my my emotional reaction to what you're doing it's like you know how in a, in a show like uh, uh, Law and Order or something that bring the, the victim will finally get believed enough that they bring them in the office in the police station and they get a sketch artist to come. And the sketch artist kind of draws the person and they go, you know, and the victim goes, that's him. You know, and as if the sketch artist is, is the kind of the, the, the person who's going to begin the process of bringing justice to this victim. And I feel like you're the sketch artist, but not for the individual victim. You're kind of become the sketch artist for oppression, in other words, the, for, for, the, for the mass.
0: I mean, I don't know what type of justice art can do. I, I've had arguments about this. At first, I was very cynical about it. Hmm. I was like, art is not, my drawings are not gonna be taken in front of the International Criminal Court. But then someone reminded me, this. Uh, this Turkish writer, she said, you know, it's true, your drawings, they're not going to be brought in front of the International Criminal Court. They won't get justice that way. But what artists and poets and satirists and writers always had is they have the ability to fashion how the future perceives the past. They have the ability to shape what the memory of someone will be. That's why poets were feared in various cultures, because a poet, like he doesn't have, doesn't have an army. He he can't kill you usually he can't hurt, he can't hurt you like that
1: doesn't even have a job
0: usually. yeah he does, he <laughs> but you know what a poet can do a poet can say something about you that is so goddamn catchy that 50 years or a thousand years after your death people won't remember anything about you except what a fuck up you were that is what a poet can do and crooked that, hillary
1: Ah, the that's folk, the, the folk poet the, of our time. <laughs> you know, when you were talking
0: about when you were talking about shaping reality, there was a part. There was a part of me I was thinking. I was like, "You're right. You're right." We, we, um, the problem is we've all realized that coll- reality right. is a collective hallucination. Not just
1: not just the not good just guys. our not just our friends, not just
0: our buddies. Everyone, yeah. and um, it turns out that actually, maybe. The um lack of agreement on reality wasn't a good thing all along, and maybe that we fashion nightmares when we do that
1: I know that's the thing I'm scared of now i mean well first as a as a, as a human being witnessing these things, channeling these things, do you get into overload
0: yeah yeah i I do um I mean. Yes, of course. imagine I do you like
1: sit in the dark or something and weep, or have no. a tea and cookies? I mean, what do you do to?
0: I mean, to, it's like you know. There's
1: residue for sure. You know. I mean, okay,
0: th- I, got, I just gotta say though. I mean, I do this voluntarily, right? Like everyone who does <laughs> it, it's it's not I. I, I think that like the people, you know, one should worry about it, the people who it's just their lives and they're stuck there because they have shitty passports, not, you know, or right. because their country has been destroyed. Not, you know, someone who who quite voluntarily uh, goes in and does a little work for, you know, a few days or weeks. Um, but I think that it's so it's not just like, you know, me or people, you know, in my fields. It's I think that's what's actually happening is. um it used to be that you were only exposed to um, a certain amount of the world's suffering. Whereas now, it is quite theoretically possible, if you wanted to, to be exposed to all the world's suffering, all of it. All of um, the kids dying of cancer and the bombs falling and the uh, frustrated life plans and the poverty and like the toxic chemicals and the inevitable climate change, all of it, all at once. More than, not only more than you can do anything about, because that's you know that's a given, but more than you can even feel anything about. And um, you you see, and this is leading to a lot of interesting and troubling realignments. Uh, The first thing is that a lot of people have uh, just decided, well, my I can't feel bad about all of this, so I I don't care. I don't care. I'm just not going to feel bad. Fuck it. You know, bombs away. Fuck it. the other thing is this sort of uh, bizarre whataboutism and shaming that's is best exemplified uh, every time there's a terrorist attack in the West. There is um, a listicle of eight terrorist attacks you weren't thinking about when you were looking at the terrorist attack in Paris. Um, you know who's who's. Incidentally, by the way, there's always more of those listicles commissioned than there are uh, original, journey, uh, original journalism by local journalists about those terrorist attacks. That uh, the shame is much more uh, saleable. So you have you have this, and eventually, what does it lead to? You doing it leads to you saying, getting adopting this sort of classically Buddhist stance, right? That existence is suffering. And I think that perhaps that is um, what. One of the like that is a sort of fundamental like restructuring of how we see the world that's happening with social media and the internet and with like 24 million um, stories per second news.
1: Right, but then if we realize that, then our purpose becomes you know the bodhisattva's purpose is to mitigate the suffering, or at least to you know to bear witness to it and have compassion for it.
0: Yeah, I think, I think people, they react to it very, very, very different ways. But I, I definitely think that, like, at first people's reaction was wanting to do something about it, but now many people's reaction has just been to turn off, turn away from it.
1: Right, or build walls.
0: Yeah. Or say fake news.
1: Do you feel, having been through the last, eight or nine years of, of these experiences and, and studying this, do you feel more hopeful about the world than before?
0: I don't feel hopeful about the world, but I feel uh, hopeful about people, if that makes sense. Um, I mean, and I don't necessarily mean like the, the human race or like all people, but I mean like individual people because I've, I've seen and continue to see such genius and resilience and kindness and courage and hope that I don't think anyone... Couldn't be awed by it. Anyone couldn't be inspired by it. And, I mean, hope for the world. I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what that means. But um, respect for people. I think that's what it is. A profound, profound, profound respect for people.
1: Humans. Even. Humans.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> have you ever thought about going, doing teaching, or do you do some? Or
0: I don't have a degree. Like no one's going to hire
1: me. Well, art school, do you need, I guess you need degrees for that too. Yeah, you
0: need a degree. I'm not vetted. I might, you know, plant like dim ideas in people's heads. Sorry guys, but <laughs> it's free, you know.
1: <laughs> well, you teach through your work.
0: Yeah. And I, also, to be honest, I, I don't know, like I, I've always been pretty skeptical of art school in America. Um, I, I, I wouldn't feel this way in like, a country that um, didn't get people into two hundred thousand dollars of debt to get a degree. Like, if, if art school was you know subsidized by the government, this doesn't apply. But I was always like. Most of you aren't going to be able to make a living as artists. That two hundred thousand dollars you spent, you could spend in a million ways that are more pleasurable, educational, productive, or fun than than this is. You can a million ways. You could you could buy an apartment that you live in. You can um, spend like five years apprenticing um, right. to some like master painter in Thailand. You can do all sorts of things that don't involve uh, getting into deep debt at SVA. And so uh, I always felt like if I taught like at an art school like that, basically I would be um, complicit in uh, the reproduction of um, enslaving people to um, to debt and enslaving people to jobs that they didn't want to service this debt. And um, I was like, nah, I'd just rather if I, ha- I have something to teach, I'd just rather hang out with someone, um, maybe some like working class young person, and like tell them myself, <laughs> you know, how to do it for free.
1: Right. What are you What are you working on now, and what's next?
0: Well, what am I working on now? God, I, I'm finishing up my, my Rolling Stone piece about the border. And if anyone afterwards wants to like listen to me rant about the border, I'm happy to, about the horrible bureaucratic nightmares. Oh, by the way, I'm just putting this on the podcast because it galls me. The press agent at ICE, whose entire job seems to be to thwart journalists and pre- prevent them from accessing stuff, makes 100 in $8,000 a year.
1: Hundred and
0: eight. Yeah, hundred and eight thousand dollars a year. That's that. This is this is you know, where where the where the upper middle class is going in America. But um, so I'm working on that. And what else am I doing? I don't know. I've been drawing like cool portraits of Puerto Rican poets. That's that's been really fun. And I, I my my hobby is um, I study Arabic. I I feel like I'm never gonna. Actually, master it. But um, literary Arabic is probably like my my great like love, passion project uh, thing I do for fun. So uh, right now I'm reading a really cool book called Leg Over Leg, which is the first modernist Arabic novel.
1: In the in the work you're doing on the border, I mean, is it? I feel like a lot of people are trying to figure out what is a border anymore. You know, there's a there's. I was talking to Danielle, who I've got to have on this show about borders and nationalism and how things work and what is a nation anymore but i understand trumpist people's fear of like well what is the if people just walk across there what's our boundary what is this thing but then it seems to collapse on itself finally the idea that the nation state might just be an obsolete construction that this whole thing is kind of stupid
0: there is something we really have to figure out now, and I I'm, I know I'm giving such a depressing podcast I suck I'm so sorry guys no it's no, no joyful but, but 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 this is this is this is what worries me we uh, because of climate change in and this is already happening but it's going it's going to keep happening at an increasingly accelerated rate a lot of people are going to have to move because the areas that they're in are going to be underwater or too hot or have droughts or have extreme weather or being otherwise uninhabitable and if the world does not think of a way to give people human rights that are not dependent on a piece of paper that they get because of the place that they were born in, the type of fascism that emerges out of all of those people having to move inevitably move versus the current border regime is going to be a type of fascism that, I mean, it, it it gives me chills to think about the horrors that are going to be unleashed from that. So to me, thinking of ways to organize beyond the nation state it's not it's not just like a cool idea it's actually something that we fundamentally have to deal with because our entire planet is warming and changing
1: right and being able to accept accept that to a certain extent at least gives us the ability to move humanity around in a way consistent with reality rather than these artificial political boundaries.
0: Especially because our history has always been completely intertwined. We have always moved. We have never had pure um, states. We have never had places where only one type of people lived. That, that's just that's just a fiction. I mean, even when... I mean, one of the things that like I laughed at like was I was in McAllen and you know, which is on the border, and, you know, McAllen until 140 years ago was Mexico, and it still feels like it, and it's mostly, you know, Mexican-American people, and I was just like, look thinking about the Trump people, and I was like, what are you afraid of losing? What are you afraid that's going to change, you know, like, this, like, what, what are you so afraid of? This was never the pure America that you've hallucinated, you know, this was never the white ethno-state that you imagined that existed, and it never will be, and, your fear is causing ridiculous horrors, and your fear isn't even rooted in a real past
1: right. well, that's where I'm thinking, or at least hoping your work is curative, in that it it allows us to see the humanity in these situations and of these people of these others you know so we're we're not as filled with fear but filled instead with identification, ultimately compassion and move to do something. Thank you <laughs> well, thank you. Molly Crabapple. Please stick around so we can bring you back for our discussion with Jace and the audience at the end. Thank you, Molly. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're on Team Human, coming to you alive from the Google funded and likely surveilled Civic Hall, the only co working space in New York City where demos mean something other than pitching a VC. Team Human is a flag in the sand, a denunciation of the fear, the labels, and the lies that are used to alienate us from one another, erode the fabric of our social reality, and pit us against one another in an ill-conceived and self-destructive competition. And for what? Total isolation masquerading as security. Well, that stops here. It's time to find the others. You can support Team Human by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on Support. Become a subscriber and gain access to premium content, the ability to ask questions on the show, and a signed copy of my book, Team Human, coming out from WW Norton in January. You can also support us simply by sharing our feed with others. What you get as a supporter, too, is one of these signed, beautiful Team Human membership cards, and I'm going to deliver one to our newest member, Mika Sifri. He's a card carrying member of Team Human. Thank you, Mika. So we are listening, are we listening to it? A clip from Jace Clayton, aka DJ Ruptures, acclaimed 2001 CD Gold Teeth Thief. Say that ten times fast.
2: This one is reaching out to R5. <laughs>
1: Jace Clayton is an artist and writer based in Manhattan, also known for his work as DJ Rupture. Clayton uses an interdisciplinary approach to focus on how sound, memory, and public space interact, with an emphasis on low-income communities in the global south. His book, Uproot, Travels in 21st Century Music and Digital Culture, was published in 2016, And his show on WFMU aired for five years in the hour right before my own show. And that's how I got to meet him When at WFMU, because it's a shoestring and there's one studio. You basically, you end your show by popping in a CD. And then the next person has to come and run in, set up all their stuff, and then change the CD to theirs and then start the show. And during that transition, when we're both rushing and whatever, we still had time to... Hug and meet and say, "Hey, I'm Doug. Oh my gosh, I love your work! So thank you. Welcome, welcome, Jace Clayton. Thanks for playing for Team Human. Oh,
4: thanks for having me."
1: So, Vibe Magazine gave Gold Teeth Thief a four-star review, calling it a stunning, globe-trotting, three-turntable mix, bumping, brash, and without borders. You know, and it's of a time. I don't know if you could hear that. It's it's of a time. I listened to that um, last night when I was preparing for the show. And I got this wave, it's why I wrote that monologue about the early cyber day, I got this wave, not of nostalgia, but of hope, of possibility, this moment of, of, of wild peer-to-peer mashup, social free-for-all and possibility. And this is 2001, pre 11 2001. I mean, you were part of that, the, the
4: explosion,
1: I guess. I mean, was that, that was a happy moment for you? <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, it was, of course. Um, yeah, and with that mix, it's funny, you know, I, in a way, I was like, here, here's my record, here are the records I love, here are the sound I love. All different types of music and genres and, and what happens if I can combine them all into the same space and layer and overlap and draw that out into some sort of other narrative um, in the form of a mix. And I did it and I'm like... This is, I want to share this with people. How do I do that? I'll email the CD to, I'll mail the CD to a friend and I'll ask him to render an MP3 and put it online. And then it just kind of grew and sort of went viral, as people would say nowadays. And so you mentioned the Vibe review. It's like, I didn't mail out any press copies. It just sort of caught on and snowballed. Um, But the hope of this time when all these things were connecting and tumbling together and there was a sort of joy behind it. Well, it was like and that's—it's funny because I wrote in
1: 1994. I wrote this book, *Media Virus*, and that's the viral that I meant. This, the the both the wild recombinant quality of the music, but then the recombinant, uh, contagious spread of the way the music moved around. And I feel like what we've seen is how viral went from being this wild, almost sigil magic spread of combinations of things to some new technique of the propaganda state through algorithms and big data.
4: Yes, yeah. It's <laughs> it's so crazy how some well first off like that sort of serendipity and like gestalt moment couldn't happen nowadays unless i had, you know, the sort of the like the Spotify gatekeeper on my side and all these it's a series of like four or five people basically. <laughs> um whereas then it was this wild groundswell and you know, i yeah, I was sort of my it, My DJ career began, but then all of a sudden, you know, within a year or two, I'd be invited to Brazil, to Belgrade, to, you know, all the, all these different places. It wasn't even located in one specific site then, um, which is fantastic. And you would go in and
1: play, or you would DJ, you would do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So DJing, box of records. <laughs> But it wasn't just DJing for you at that point. It wasn't just I'm going to play this song and this song and this song. You were in performance. Were you
4: mushing it together? I was. I was mushing it together. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That that was. That's the important part. I mean. I mean, I I always appreciated DJs for the fact that it's not about originality, you know, it's like I don't have to make music to participate in it. Um, But that said, I was like, I'm very interested in being as active as possible with these sounds. And so I guess beat matching layering transitions, um, especially back then I was into, there's a lot of density going on in a lot of these mixes I were doing, which meant um, kind of nonstop work to make it appear seamless.
1: Right, and on the other hand, you're kind of like this crazy librarian, you know, finding
4: the twin poles. Yes. Well, you know what I mean. It's like here's yeah. some
1: Balinese this and some of that to bring in. I mean, it's like it's like knowing that this sound is going to go with something that I heard in 1987 that was recorded in the you know the backwoods of wherever. And isn't is there a, a even didactic intent in it is it just a textural experience or are you like no i'm with this i'm saying this yeah
4: no didactic intent. i mean and obviously i uh, want like you, you want to hit these emotional moments or energy moments and but first and foremost uh, djing it's it's about this it's me solo on stage but it's always a kind of give and take with the crowd with the energy in the room what people are dancing to how they're moving how the sound system sounds uh but also, again, the fact that the DJ, it's, it's, the, it's the opposite of this. We're on stage. We're, give, we're, we're holding forth. We're discoursing. Right. You know? Half the crowd there to see a DJ doesn't care. They don't know what's playing. And I do craft my mixes in such a way, if you know certain songs, you'll get an extra layer of information, which will kind of deepen the experience. But you can also just sort of stumble in to be like, oh, I was at some club last night. I don't know where I was, but the music was great. Like I'm also very happy. Oh, right. With that. It's like
1: the person walking into Star Wars who hasn't read all the novels. You know, it's still, you know, well not anymore, but it would they were still good movies. Yeah. You know. That's a, that's another another topic, but I know what you mean. You know, so you can experience it on a fully textural mm-hmm. aesthetic level, or you can go, oh look how this relates to that, or he's using different decades to show the same thing, or collapsing histories. And I mean it feels in some ways like a new kind. Like a 21st century cubism, you know, where instead of showing the same object from different perspectives, you're showing uh, uh, the same object almost from different times, you know, and compressing them into one, uh, one moment. But it it it's there's I I feel like there's a a a socio spiritual effect to hearing that, you know, to hearing and maybe it just because I'm old, but when I listened to the 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 gold teeth thief, it was like it was like I got it for the first time. It was like, oh, it's sort of, it's that same Buddhist thing almost that Molly was, it's like all is one, it all, do you know what I mean? It's like, you
4: could almost, it's like, what else? Throw something else on there, you know? Yeah, it's funny. I'm resistant to the all is one thing, Um, Uh and I'm you know everything is remixed. I'm like no, actually, you know. And so for me, it's like these things are talking to each other, and we travel through them, and they're different intensities at different moments. Um, But it doesn't all go to. I'm so I'm anti eclecticism. Right. Yeah. But there's certain pat. There's pattern recognition to be done. Yes, there's pattern recognition to be done, and that's in the preset of like, oh, these beats work together and these beats don't work, and then the tensions between those two, and there's all sorts of things like that. But yeah, I'm, I'm a weirdly like intolerant listener. Well, in you can't ways. throw in
1: the kitchen sink, I guess it, you're saying. Exactly. There's a There's yep. a discipline to it, but it creates a kind of a, a time tunnel vortex experience of resonances. It's like it's almost more like, uh, you know, history is the spiral staircase with these moments that just match up all the way down, and you kind of By putting them together, you let us experience. And there's an empowerment in that.
4: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, at the very basic level, records, you're taking these little coils of sound all through written, and then you're putting them into the space where suddenly they're in conversation with each other, in unexpected conversation with each other. Um, Yeah, like kind of giving a new life to the archive or pulling things which might have been completely forgotten. And so that's, yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, and the other big,
1: big another big thread in your work is the relationship of the, of the artist to technology, you know, and, you know, uproot travels in 21st century digital music and culture, you know, it spends, a, a, at least a chapter really on, on auto tune, which was really of interest to me and our, our producer, Stephen Bartolome, he did his, his master's thesis on auto tune and, you know, auto tune as an expression of capitalism, you know, and sort of boxing people in, you're on the right note, you know, and just, as opposed to, you know, why can't we be veering up to the right? And Where's the human in autotune? It's like, no, we're going to wipe out all that. Um, so you your, your work, though, looked at both the repression of autotune, boxing people in, but then the liberation of people uh, using those tools at the same time. I thought maybe, though, you could start, if you can explain uh, sort of melismatic vocals, you know, and how they work, and then, and then we can kind of... I mean, melismatic vocals, is it just like when you hear someone read Torah and they go uh, 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 on that syllable? Is that it?
4: Basically, you know, it's like Aretha Franklin, soul music. There are all these traditions, Quranic recitation, where, you know, melisma is when you take one syllable, you know, and you pull it through many different pitches, you know, amen. Endless, endless visions of this. And it's often equated with, oh, this is soulful singing, this is spiritual singing, this is the, the human in the song, these moments of sort of unscripted, uh, melodic improvisation. And then the, the so for the chapter in Uproot that's writing on autotune, I focus specifically on, I mean, I talk about the, the bride technology, it happened in California, but then very quickly it's in rural Morocco conservative wedding music. Full insane sounding auto-tune in this which is is what is utterly removed. And we
1: actually have that. Let's play that clip for a sec. This is, it's insane right?
4: Everything else is referencing the pastoral. You've got the birds, it's the utar, the sort of like mountain side instrument, and then his voice synthed out.
1: I'm like, why the hell did he do that? Why? Because he can do it. He can. So, why does he. Why are they, do you believe they've chosen to. use that stepping apparatus
4: yeah i mean it's a long story i think part of it actually has to do with the call to prayer and just the presence of those types of melismatic uh, vocal recitation so we have an entire enormous swath of the world where at least five times a day they'll hear incredibly powerful melismatic vocals and so that's become both a religious key point but then also this situation of like oh to be a good singer you have to be able to push your voice around um, all the greats having stunning vocal control here it's like Whitney and Aretha and all of that and so auto-tune works um, when people push it it works precisely because the software is looking and saying this picks this should be a C a Constant note, but instead the voice is fluttering, so it tries to correct it. And then when people push the sound of the correction too far, it turns into this kind of strange robotic sonic pleasure. The share
1: do you believe thing.
4: Exactly. But so I think that's one of the reasons why um, in a place like Morocco, people people love it, you know, because they're already listening to these microtonal shifts in singing styles and then autotune does its cyborg weirdness in those spaces. So that's one of... Several reasons that contribute. So it's
1: fully intentional. He wants the listeners to
4: be hearing
1: the computer interacting with his voice.
4: Yes. Yeah. And it was funny. I mean, the one of the great things you can do with a book length reporting is go slow. So I spent a lot of time in Morocco and interviewing studio people, musicians, producers, the whole. And it's kind of fascinating because there was people reluctant to say that they put on auto tune. would say, Oh, I, I can sing. It's the producer who put it on. And, and then they say, Oh no, the, I'm the producer. No, the artist asked me to, there's a lot of like, because th- there's still this mix of like, they don't want it to seem like it's a crutch, but it's the sound that everyone's looking for. So that was just the kind of fantastic like, push and pull. And it goes both
1: ways though. I mean, you wrote in the book how Whitney, the op- Whitney Houston's opening of, um, what's the oh, song? I Will Always Love You. I Will though. Always Love You. My daughter always sings that. Aye, yeah, ay, ay, yeah, ay, just because of that. Um, she's part she's of into it. the Melissa. Yeah, she is. I mean, it, she, when she does it, it sounds a little bit more like uh, uh, you know, Frankie Avalon or something, you know, <laughs> one of those. But um, it didn't, uh, auto-tune can't do her. Mm-hmm. It can't auto-tune her in the opening of that. It gets... Yes. It yes. goes nuts.
4: Exactly. It goes nuts and because the software, the algorithm sees it as one big error. They say, "Oh, this poor woman can't hold a note," and so AutoTune freak, freaks out. <laughs> it doesn't do that to her.
1: <laughs>
3: or...
4: it, it would, yeah, if you put that through because that's precisely that sort of it not quite fitting up the algorithmic correction plus the natural contours of the pitches don't don't compute as it were. So
1: but it's like it's such a good metaphor for the way we're being quantized, you know, by digital reality and a market reality. So what is that worth, mm-hmm. you know? What mm-hmm. your your punch? The, it's not even industrial age punch the clock. It's it's the digital thing. It's like living in a snap two grid of like, are you here? Are you here? Here here. And you can add granularity to it, but you're still one or the other. You lose your this place that we really
4: live. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why autotune is so popular all over the globe. It's often used in many different ways across different musical styles. But at its core, it's it dramatizes this tension between, you know, the human expression and this hyper digital world that we all inhabit, you know. And so it's a way of thinking like via sonic pleasure. How could we negotiate some of those conditions, some of those boundaries or contours or interfaces?
1: I mean, but some artists, it feels like some artists are negotiating it and other artists are just kind of submitting to it, you know, to the to the ethos of the producer's control room. You know, the producer knows, oh, I'm working for the label
4: The question of agency of the artist. Right. It's always especially embedded in the music system. And so at the most basic level for some people are like, oh, to make, to succeed in the pop music market, your song, you need to tick these boxes. You need a little, you need a big autotune chorus. You need a, you know, this, this, that, and the other thing, the sort of structural elements (laughs) that, that signify the contemporary.
1: I mean, but you can hear it click in even on a car radio at this point you can hear they're singing and then there's the auto tune it there's the quantized human and all of a sudden it's so for me it's so distancing you know but you were saying and you said that that at, at least because you've seen it used globally that it activates a deep-seated it, deep-seated conservative ideas of berber womanhood
4: oh in the moroccan context absolutely yeah and that so how is this that, what what is that you know it's At first I was like, how come it's more popular in Amazir and Berber music in Morocco and not the sort of Arab music? And so that led me, went to Agadir, to South Morocco, and I was asking people and trying to do my research. And I came across this um, ethnomusicological, an academic paper written by a woman in Chicago. And she discusses how in Amazir culture, there's a stereotype of the pure Berber woman lives in the countryside, speaks pure Amazir, doesn't speak Arab, you know, no Arab accent, and she's got a clarion call voice that can call out across a mountainside, like a cutting voice. And then I thought about it, I'm like, that makes so much sense. There's all this Berber wedding music. When you put autotune, especially in a female voice, and they push a soprano, they push it very far, it amplifies these deeply conservative ideas of, of what a, the proper... Berber female should, should sound like and be in society.
1: Oh, so it's almost like a, a weird version of, of clothes that make someone
4: conform to the ideal. Yes. And it happens to coincide with this major pop tool. Um, but yeah. And so in a way that was knowing that so many people feel very strongly about auto tune. And then I went, I had many twists and turns in that chapter. I wanted to show how this Silicon Valley technology sort of globalizes in surprising ways. Um, but then also it's kind of to keep flip it a few times and be like here, it's doing very interesting things in Morocco, but then you get to the core and it's actually a, a really complicated type of veiling that's going on in this. Do you see,
1: I mean, it's a random question, but you may, do you see auto tune being done more to women than to men?
4: there in, or here in even in, in a Moroccan context absolutely it's mm. not necessarily more but more extreme and so this mm. was one of the things i when i read this article i'm like it all starts to make sense it's like the voice can be taken further it, like it feels there's all these sort of social conditions which allow that to flourish um and these are, of course are questions i'm more broadly interested in yes the individual expression what does that mean but how is that being shaped by our tools and by the sort of the various filters that they enable
1: Right. This sort of ongoing relationship or this call and response is not Mm -hmm. to God, the call and response to our technology, Mm -hmm. you know, and and it's a back and forth. It's a give and take, but it's a living, evolving relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, you say just to show off your writing a little bit, um, everyone should get this book. It's 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 not even that expensive, is it? It's It's, not even that expensive. (laughs) No, it's like MIT Press, but it's not like one hundred thirty dollars or something. FSG paperback. Oh, it's FSG. Okay, great. And then paper. So just get it. Um, Uproot. if if You say, if one thread weaves through all the wildly disparate uses of autotune, it's a tacit understanding that technology slips into us at the messy intersection of pleasure and control, and the voice itself, individual, fragile, and capable of being made grand or muted in any number of ways, sings out at the heart of the contest between what we've inherited and what we may yet become. I mean, and that... The idea of of bringing our tradition forward, yet all, you know that that we're in we're historically and right in the middle of the past and the future. Um, Team Human seems to be about this very contest. You know, I even say in the beginning we reveal the embedded codes and strategies for you know, as if we're gonna reveal the codes that we're living by in order to write them the way we want to. You know, and it seems like you're saying that that autotune helps really create an interface between tradition
4: and uh, uh, design. Yeah. Yeah. And it's worth mentioning that the software is created to correct um, flawed vocals, to correct out of key instruments and then share kind of famously used it in the song Believe on the chorus and they pushed it too far. And so the effect, it's meant to not be heard. That's how the inventor wants it. Like that's what he intended. So he actually hates the way, what we understand as auto-tune, Dr. Andy Hildebrand. Um, and so that's why I'm like, it's a really interesting thing because it's, it's user error that then turns into a sonic technique which is sought after, um, but still on any you know, any sort of, everything you hear in the radio, it's you, the most auto-tune you're not hearing. You know, and I, Right. Well, it,
1: well he, right. He meant it as a black box technology. And then people went, let's make it transparent. Let's just let's play rather than than hide your response to the the digital onslaught, if you will, or the, you know, the, the digital enslavement of certain kinds of musics. I mean, at least as I see it is this um, Sufi plugins um, that you developed. Hopefully we could show a bunch of this. I mean they're even they're labeled in in some other language.
4: Uh, yes. So- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're weird. <laughs> Absolutely. Um we actually we made a a, dict- a glossary of all these electronic music terms from English into French into Tamazight, uh, which is the language you see. And then these are these are plugins for for Ableton Live. Right now right. they exist in the one system, um but yes. And so the idea was let's think about Let's think about non-Western musicality and different ways of encoding that in, in the digital that aren't being addressed. Like, what could like a radically new interface look like? And in that sense, I was like, okay, we just get rid of English. You know, everything is clearly labeled. It's just labeled it written in Berber for a start. You know? Right. And things like the pitches are hardwired to uh, North African scales. So you can't play Rihanna or Brahms, um, but you can play... Not, a whole wealth of music and um, all sorts of different scales, um, but I'm like, oh, I'm going to make the software with my presets, my defaults on it, um, and and then release it out into the world. And you were making, I mean, you were making it not just for people to play, but it. It's- yeah. It's a comment of a sort. It is. It is, and it's that's that's the thing in tech actually, because you know, you gotta, I could have my article on talking about bias and the like music software bias. I was like, or I can make some crazy weird tool that tens of thousands of people can download, and that it's your presence is, it's kind of it's like this flamboyant thing, and it's sure it's criticism, but it's also play, and it's, it's multiple things at once, and and once I realized that like this was possible in the software, I was like, oh, that's what it has to be you know it's this is the form it needs to take and did sufi people play these with these sufi people play yeah it's the title actually comes from a musician i lived in barcelona for several years and a good friend of mine i worked with was a sufi musician and um, who passed away a few years ago but he was this kind of whole in, got me thinking about you know for him his sufism was like he's like, one of the ways I express it is by musical fusions. He's Moroccan, but he did all sorts of stuff. And that was, kind of spirit went into the, the software for me. Um, but yeah, many, the the next step is making them into a format, which is actually more portable. And so ideally I'd make them as what's called VSTs, which would be more easy to share in a North African context, because in that part of the world, um, it's just, sort of what we look what we call like older software like Cubase or Fruity Loops is more so in order to really get it into studios in like Casablanca I would need to port it to another language yada 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 but
1: and then these people's relationship relationships to technology in places that you're going is different than than here I mean there's a little bit I would think a little bit less ownership of stuff no
4: Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Just like she, I mean, fewer devices yeah. and fewer companies. Yeah. Yeah. All of that. Of course. I mean, less, yes, ownership. But that said, for example, like Facebook use among my Amazir friends in Castro, it's astronomical. And that's this thing. They're like, okay, we're Moroccan. We're not Arab. We don't have much entree into public space in Morocco, but we're on Facebook all the time. And there's all sorts of activism and cultural pride things and just discussion, discussion, discussion. But it's it actually really changed the way I thought about Facebook mm. just spent hanging out with my friends in Morocco.
1: Yeah, I mean, you think that those of us who leave Facebook because we're object to Mark Zuckerberg's evil, um, all friends, um, I don't know who funds us here, but I'm trying to say anything. He's evil. It's not he's, I'm not saying he's evil, but his evil, the, the evil parts of him, which we all have, of course, as humans. Um those, do you think that those of us who've withdrawn from Facebook are are denying ourselves something? In other words, do you think it's kind of worth being there because so much of the world is there in oh, in yeah. in other ways? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> leave. Leave. Delete. I mean, I don't want to miss out on some cool Moroccan thing going on. Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're writing in Berber, leave. Yeah. Okay.
1: All right. Fair enough. There's one other one other thing I wanted to play, um, and I can't even say it, Gabadu and Moret? Mar-
4: oh. oh, yeah, Gabadu and the Moret Index.
1: Right, which is maybe explain it
3: before
4: we play a oh, little yeah. bit of it. This is this, it's, um, it's actually, it's a, it's a performance piece composition I wrote for four vocalists in the stock market. And it's been, and basically so it's those acapella performance, but each of the singer's vocals are processed and transformed by that day's stock market data. All right. So,
1: and play a little bit of it, so you keep with that with the like sound a, thing.
4: A demo clip for one voice.
1: I guess you didn't get this broadcast on the New York Stock Exchange trading yeah. floor, or something. Ha- feeding back yet. to them the sound of <laughs> their know. own trades. And, it's yeah.
4: not yet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I mean, you made it. You made it sound really, uh, uh, you know, so, like something that would be in the cloisters, not a. Yes.
4: Yeah. This is you know, and it's four vocalists, and they are sort of different sections that are trying to get different emotional moods, um, but. Yeah. In a way, the whole concept started me to think like, what is what is an individual, individual voice nowadays when we're amplified and scattered digitally in so many different ways um, and thinking, well, we're talking about it with autotune, this idea of like voice and soulfulness in the body and the individual. It's like, well, no, actually we're obliterated. We too are products being traded and there's this layer of international finance and data shooting around. Let's think of a way to... Um, to kind of create a performance setup that will like quite literally give voice to this. So you'll get the the human voice, but then you also get the layers of, of, of electronic modulations that are interpenetrating. Um, and it's set up so that the more... And that's um,
1: also the voice of capitalism. Exactly, I mean, it's the voice that...
4: of capitalism, yeah. And it's set up so that the more instability there is, the more the values go up and down, the more um, sort of distortions or you know, the more modulations you'll hear in the
1: which is fun. I mean it's it's subversive <laughs> but it's it's
4: <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I was giving a talk about it once in um Indianapolis and there was like an older gentleman in the crowd who's really he's like, "Oh, this is activist art. You're, you're part <laughs> of the Occupy Pie, Wall Street." and I'm like <laughs> it was a very turned the conversation to very interesting because he felt attacked by this piece, um, which I think of as sort of, oh, it's oh. gentle, and it's this kind of like we're in this weird soup, in a sense. Um, and I'm like simply trying to, and this, for me, I'm like, how can I as an artist sort of articulate what feels like an honest condition? Um, but yeah, he he was just like, <laughs> I was, you know, black-black anarchist in his eyes. It was very, very intriguing.
1: <laughs> yeah, especially if it's that, that if he's going to take that as uh, as as aggressive. I mean, how do you see how do you see the the sort of balance of power that we're talking about between the human voice and this sort of techno-capitalist containment? You know, between the creative power of humans and the controlling forces of the systems that we've that we've created
4: it is a very scary moment, you know, as, as has been noted. And again, the, the source in this piece, I was like, oh yeah, our individual voices matter, we're, are being devalued, you know, and this sort of like, there's like the, the sort of the tech gods at the top, the Elon Musk, the superheroes and all that, but it feels like sort of um, team thinking and wider networks of solidarity. You're like, oh, this, this all makes sense in this, in this way. Um, but it's very much against, I feel like the way we're programmed. We, we want to look at the, individuals on stage we want to see the hero and the protagonist and all of this and it's definitely it's you know it's not that's a different era maybe it was never that era but it's certainly not now
1: well i mean it feels like you know but certainly in 2001 when you're doing dj music at, at, in the late 90s and early 2000s at least the dj was almost anonymous I felt like we had moved from the sort of the long haired guy on the stage, kind of doing that masturbatory guitar lick, you know, and everybody screaming to now the music. I don't even know where it's coming from. We're just all dancing as part of this thing.
4: Yep. Yeah. Those were my early. I kind of became a DJ inspired by nights at Boston's only after hours club, you know, the loft. Um, And but you couldn't on the second floor, the small, you couldn't see the DJ. It was just complete. It was just the world of sound. You'd recognize the dancers. That was it. And it blew my mind I was like this is a performance paradigm I can get down with you know right it's not about the stage I mean pressed up with a rock show or rapture or whatever something completely different um, and it's been it has been strange seeing it since that sort of EDM boom and Las Vegas and mega stars um, but I know Megastar, you'll see that, you know, Calvin Harris or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. or whoever's,
1: yeah. somebody's, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> his name, like on giant lit billboards, you know, getting paid 100,000 bucks for a Friday night mm-hmm. dance mix mm-hmm. every week. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like there's Britney show and, <laughs> and Mariah Carey show and the DJ show. Mm-hmm. I mean, the irony of it, you know, um, Terry Tamlitz is a great uh, electronic musician. He lives in Japan now and he used to do this show where it was an electronic music mix show, with, and he would stand up there pretending that he was mixing CDs, and the whole thing would just be one MP3 file that he made ahead of time. And then halfway through the show, I mean, he would move his mouth to the music and slowly go off the lip sync to see if people noticed, and then take little walks off the stage and then back on, and, until people realized that he's not... Because his idea... Was that if it's electronic music, why do I even need to be here? This is insane. You're paying me five, ten thousand bucks to show up, but we could just pop in this thing and the same thing would happen. But with yours, it's different. There's this one moment, I think it's an uproot, where you're talking about how you can't see the crowd because you're working too hard, but you can feel if something's working because the heat of the crowd gets more intense. So for you, it's alive.
4: Absolutely, it's always alive, always improvised, um, always sort of situational and reactive. It wouldn't be—I wouldn't still be doing it all these years later if it wasn't deeply interesting in the moment every time. And that's why it has to be new. Right. I mean, however digital it gets, it's like you know Clear Channel. When Clear Channel took over the, I uh,
1: hope they're not a sponsor too. Um, when Clear Channel took over the 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 FM radio dial, they they opened these offices like in the Southwest somewhere where they would do everybody's local station from the same computer out in the middle of nowhere in like a it's like a drone airplane hangar place where they you know they control all of America with this random music. So you lost your sort of terrestrial broadcast. There's nobody. With my weather in my neighborhood this morning, playing records that are chosen based on what's going on for us, it is alive. If you if you're doing it right, you are present. You are channeling and feeding back to to the people in the room.
4: Yeah, it's sad. I have very I don't have like the nostalgia thing in music. I don't. I'm sort of anti nostalgia. Um, but. The loss of local and regional radio is very, very sad, <laughs> precisely for that. Weird voices, weird programmings, dead air, errors, you know, oh, that's an interesting accent. Like, all these things. I, I love that, and I miss that reduced lens.
1: Oh, the best is, you know, when the DJ would, they don't use records, DJ would go to the bathroom, the record skipping, and he doesn't know it, and he's gone, and you... Just the best. You sit and listen to the radio and wait until the okay, DJ, okay. oh, you know, you hear him, pushes the record or just crossfades to something else. And it's like, yes, this is someone's alive with me right now, you know? Yeah,
4: yeah. And the shared temporality of radio is really kind of magical, too.
1: Well, let's share, let's share more Podcast. temporality uh, uh, and have Molly come up, too. So thank you so much, Jace Clayton. Thank you. For, for being here. Uh, let me remind you all, you're on Team Human coming to you alive from New York's Civic Hall where they nurture the radical idea that human beings have common interests and can even work together to realize them. Isn't that sweet? And like Civic Hall, Team Human is a flag in the sand, an intervention by people on behalf of people, a denunciation of the fear, the labels, and the lies that are used to alienate us from one another, erode the fabric of our social reality, and pit us against one another in an ill-conceived and self-destructive competition, and for what? Isolation masquerading as security. Chase, Molly, thank you for being on Team You're now officially inducted members of Team Human. There's no way out. You'll get your cards in the mail. I'm hoping we can talk with each other and then and then have uh, uh, people from our our uh, invited audience uh, join us in in this conversation. I thought maybe I'd, I'd start with some of the things that seem kind of uh, common to both of your work. I mean, one is is memory. You know, I feel like essentially you you Molly you kind of download. Download your or someone else's memories into paintings, and you write a lot about the confrontation of memory with the present and with technology, and what are we going to what are we going to retrieve what are we going to bring forward as we go forward? You offer a, a glimpse at at kind of two different kinds of memory or the friction between where we are and and our memories. Is, is your work informed by these sort of impressions of memory and retrieval?
0: I actually, I wanted to ask Jace, you had something that really struck me about being anti-nostalgia. This is something I, I think about a lot, um, because I'm, I'm from New York, like I was, I was born here, and I think, and it's always the cliche about New York, right, that every single generation of New Yorkers is like, ah, I was only cool when I was 20, and you know, now it sucks, and it's changed so much. But What is happening in New York and what's been happening um, in a lot of major cities around the world, right, is this sort of stripping off of what's unique about them in favor of what's uh, glossy, what's uh, global, uh, what looks like, you know, the glass box apartment tower and the corner uh, branch of Chase Bank. And while nostalgia has always been a part of the New York experience, I find myself like particularly being eaten by nostalgia now. So, I wanted to ask you about why you're anti nostalgia and um, what might be the uses of nostalgia?
4: Yeah, the use of that I mean, it's a great question it's and it's so complicated because in our, in the city the city level you're like yes it's 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 becoming more self- similar in the worst possible way. Everything that makes a city like unlike itself is being <laughs> being squashed, and you're like, this is major um, but yeah but the, the for me. And so this idea that nostalgia can be a galvanizing force in terms of like how we can think about this or even ex- start to express emotionally, like all these losses. Um, so there's that. And me, I'm so against it in music because then it, it it often concretizes down into like the best albums of the 70s. Suddenly it's like a hierarchy thing and the, like the kids listen to terrible music nowadays and it kind of disregards all the strange effervescences of the present. And so that's why I'm like, Against it in music,
0: it's yeah, it's like a standardizing thing. The same as uh, kind of the same problem with the canon, when it makes you think that like all that existed was you know Shakespeare, and you forget like all the cool random you know stuff from stuff from the margins that maybe didn't get to make it into history, especially because power didn't um, wasn't able to use it quite the way as it was able to use the winners. It's it's interesting, yeah. All the cities becoming more and more unlike the cities and more and more like each other.
4: Yes. <laughs>
1: Right. I mean, which kind of brings me to the second thing I was going to talk about, which was this kind of uh, local versus global, you know, the, the, specific, the, the, the specific, not to be nostalgic, but what was specific of, of each place, uh, you know, versus sort of this, the, the corporate universal branded anchors. If you're living in a completely in a in a space that's now completely divorced of its local fabric, we end up depending on kind of corporate brands for uh, a sense of place, for a sense of anchor. It's like we're in the shopping mall, and it's like, oh right, you know, the Neiman's down there, and the J.C. over there. That's how I know where I am. You know, and to be using that, you know, as as our guideposts is. It's a strange way to a strange way to live. It's a very generic landscape. I mean,
0: one of the, so sometimes I I spend some time kind of looking at um, neo reactionary quasi fascist Twitter because I want to understand it, especially European. And in addition to like you know the horrific racism um, and the hatred of women, one of the things that you find is this feeling that everything beautiful has been stolen by global corporate brands that you know your like beautiful traditional architecture has been bulldozed to build um, you know glass towers and mcdonalds and i think that one of um the mistakes that the left has made is, and one of the things that they've allowed the right in europe if not in the us to monopolize is the left has not talked about why beauty is important and why that local fabric, which was beautiful, and it's still beautiful, I mean, there's a reason that like these ancient cities, like people put bubbles around them and have tourists visit and no one like does that with modern ones. Um, The left has, I don't know why, maybe they thought it was Fufu, maybe they thought that it didn't matter, maybe there was a sort of like aesthetic thing. They've discounted that and they've let the right especially in Europe, use this nostalgia for that beauty as a way of advancing fascist and racist and incredibly misogynist programs?
4: Yeah, it's funny. I was in... I'm completely spot on, uh, but I was in Berlin giving a talk last month and an Austrian shepherd, who's a fan of my music, <laughs> came up and he was talking, talking, and talking and really interesting. But he expressed, precise, he's a musician, he's really interested in electronic music and like thinking about all this folk music from where he grew up. But he's like, it's completely co-opted by the worst types of people. And so he's at this weird, um, so yeah, so suddenly we're talking about aesthetics and we're talking about like the, sort of the combination between politics and aesthetics yeah. in a very kind of pragmatic way yeah. yeah that's great
0: because you know i mean we, we were the one our side was the side that invented the term bread and roses and it's like we've forgotten about the roses
1: right but we're almost embarrassed to say uh, we don't want our politics reduced to the dislike of mcdonald's and starbucks in our town you know it's not it's not at least it's not just that we don't want a starbucks in our town it's that we want our town in our town you know we want we want to be connected to some way of creating value ourselves we want to be coming up and out not just to have our value extracted by some you know Something elsewhere. and and the right is tapping into that right now much better. It's funny. I listen to Trump talk about protectionism, and it sounds like Dick Gephardt, if you remember him from back in the day. You know, it was a uh, the Democrats talked about trade protectionism, and you know what what are we gonna what are we gonna preserve here in terms of our ability our ability to create value? You know, and it's gotten. I, I feel like a a lot of it's gotten confused. You know, because people are so untethered from their ability to to, uh, uh, to reify their local incarnate sensibilities, you know, where where they are and where, where they're actually living.
0: And it's not just that McDonald's and Starbucks and, like, con- you know, concrete boxes are global, though they are, that is part of the problem. It's also that they're ugly and stupid and bad. And um, like, like, for instance, um, my father's Puerto Rican and we like recently did this uh, road trip um, all around Puerto Rico, it was really beautiful. i we went to Ponce. And Ponce is um, an exquisitely beautiful city. It's, um, you know, it was built by the Spanish. It has its own sort of like Spanish colonial meets like hallucinogenic macaron, Marie Antoinette palace hallucination type vibe. But, like, the architecture of Ponce is not, you know, indigenous to Puerto Rico. It is not, like, indigenous to the Taino-Princan culture, you know, of it. It's Spanish. It's the architecture of empire. And it's fucking beautiful. And we're never... No one's ever going to say that about McDonald's and Starbucks.
1: Right. Oh, look at this mall they put here. Wow. Yeah. You know, and then, uh, but then, you know, the alternative seems to be like South Street Seaport. It's like, let's, you know, ye kite shop be, you know, this sort of this, this faux quantified, you know, retrieval of, I don't even know what, what that, what it is. This kind of, let's make it all authentic. Who do we hire to create authentic, right?
0: Because it's all about, it's all about sterility. I mean, the thing that like the neoliberal city is scared of at the core i mean not not at the periphery at the periphery everything can rot they don't care about services or you know garbage delivery or like paving things but at the at the core like what they don't want is they don't want a lack of control right and every they don't want they don't want anything to be out of control they want to control everything and they want everything to be monetized right so like Even, um, I visit Istanbul a lot. I visited Istanbul 13 times um, to do this book within two years uh, because my my co-author is Syrian Refugee and he can't leave the country. And Istanbul is filled with street cats. And these are the most spoiled little street cats in the world. They are living their best cat life. They uh, are stealing steak from tourists and getting petted and then they're like skulking off and not, and not uh, having to uh, perform, I don't know, feline labor for it. Uh, they, are, they, are, they, are, they are, it's an awesome thing. And I was, like, looking at this, and I was like, this, you know, for whatever else, like, anyone will say about Turkey, I mean, just the existence of this city full of spoiled cats that are not being abused and are free. I mean, yeah, because it's not like they're, like, neglected, abused cats, but they're free. They're free cats, right? This would never be allowed in an American city because it's out of the control of money, and it's... It's something uncontrolled and wild, and someone might sue. And um, maybe right. you could have like a park that has some cats that you rent, and then you pay no, to go exactly. into the park, but we'd only get, you know.
1: Right, we'd get city cats. Yeah, right, yeah, little things. Yeah,
0: um, and that I think is why like you get the yieldy shit because the past was more uncontrolled, and they they can't deal with that, and so they have to just like put yield kite shop. <laughs>
4: Yes, they don't have the like weird bar where like, you know, what is it like Afro-Dutch, you know, 16th century Afro-Dutch music was happening, (laughs) (laughs) everything illegitimate and, you know, dirty sullied. not yet at least.
1: Because they're only using really one metric to measure the success of something. Is it generating GDP? You know, when they build, and that was the sad thing, when they build a technology school in Manhattan, Bloomberg has this dream of let's have an engineering school. They put on on Roosevelt Island. They put basically a tech incubator. You know, would you think, don't we want to be? Can't we do something different? Can't we think? Oh wow, what would New York's response to Silicon Valley be? What would we do? You know, oh, we're just gonna outmarket them. We're gonna, you know, just uh, we're gonna make even more money. And it's such a it's such a difficult metric to live by. You know, and, and that's what I was trying to say in the, in the opening monologue is that, you know, digital, because it's so uh, quantized, it, it marries itself so well to the values of neoliberalism in, in ways that I don't think anybody imagined. We thought it was going to be the reverse, that it would just empower the periphery and then break the neoliberal trance, but it ended up just working so well in service in service of that which is why you both your work you know by by you know bringing the human hand back into it kind of forces a reevaluation of that
4: yeah I just want to add you know is I'm so glad to be here with Molly because there are a lot of these resonances um and it's really it's not just the human hand I think there's something about this um it's not like interdisciplinary, but this idea that of like, yes, you started here and you're going here. And these questions, which are you know, the Guantanamo, the money bill, this is related to that. Is related, Like you, as your individual style is going to be indirectly related to these larger global movements. Um, and there's many different areas that, that you can use to address that. And we have maybe a certain amount of extra flexibility as artists to do that. But it's, yeah.
0: I liked so much what you were saying about... Um eclecticism, too. And I, I think that's, I think, something that we've both... I mean, I certainly try to, you know, do with my my art and that you um, have, like, done so masterfully. It's how you can take from um, many different cultures and you can work in many different idioms without stripping them of what they are. Because, like, I think that's, like, the, the problem with eclecticism is it just... I don't know. It, ultimately, it, ultimately, it eventually becomes, like, a high-end New Age store where, like, the religions of the world are all reduced to, like, love each other. Um, and that all of what makes things um, themselves is taken out in um, this sort of uh, flattening um, mishmash. And, yeah, I mean, I just want to say, like, a note of appreciation to your, like, beautiful music and how well you um, are able to blend while keeping things what they are.
1: Yeah, thank you both for that. But with our last uh, ten minutes, I thought I could see if people have questions or thoughts
4: to share. Anybody want to ask something of molly or jace and for the radio viewers like the co-working space all the dust and offices has emptied and now it's just the people yeah. listening to our words. i know it was Did all we like the way-
0: chase them out
1: <laughs> no so. they leave they normally leave at that at around five or six so and then we're here after sir hi um so everyone here probably ingests a lot of media um and I just wanted to talk to the panel, um, find out sort of what are, what are your media hygiene practices to sort of keep yourself, like, sane and not thinking the world's going to end tomorrow sort of sort of thing.
0: I really, um, I mean, I, I don't have any, like, good answers. I've never been, like, a particular, like, paragon of, uh, you, you know, uh, chill or any other virtue, virtues like that. Uh, one thing that I do find myself increasingly doing, though, is... Uh, forcing myself, or not even forcing because it's kind of a joy, but focusing on reading things that took a lot of time to make. And these could either be like an awesome investigation by ProPublica, right? You know, that took like a year to do. It could be some gorgeous essay in the London Review of Books or in Caravan that like every bit of prose, like it makes you rethink the world. It could be books, you know? But um, I try not to like spend all of my media time reading um, listicles and like things like and stuff by aggregators especially
4: yeah yeah that's always great advice but something similar like you mentioned you're reading this in in the original a leg over leg over leg this like arabic modernist texts and so for me like there is of course the news jolt in the morning which leaves me like you know psychically wounded uh but then i'm just like same books novels long-form essays maybe written in the 1930s, you know, it's just like, and for me, it is, it's something about both objects that have taken or works that have taken a lot of, had a lot of time put into them, but then also just this distance of time. Like there are many conversations that I've tried to quote unquote follow that are really ve- relevant. Um, and lately I've been reading like Joseph Roth, amazing journalism, 1920s to 1930s. And I'm like, the page turner, beautiful, exquisite. Um, so yeah, but
0: I I so agree with you. And also like firsthand historical things. I I, um, am working on an essay right now about uh, the Bund, which was um, a Jewish socialist organization in uh, Eastern Europe. you know, mostly between, like, World War I and World War II, but um, started in 1898, and my great-grandfather was a part of it. And so I started, like, reading memoirs of, Bo- of this Bundist who was, like, the head of, like, the Warsaw self-defense militia. And it was this view of this world that was both, like, oddly familiar, you know, from sort of cultural resonances, but also, like, completely different, like, a world where, like a Jewish mafia ran the um, slaughterhouses and all of the union disputes were settled with knives and there are dudes with names like Yankel Scarface who settled things <laughs> and then like you're tr- the, the guy's like trying to make them communists. I mean, and I think it's really important to read um, original texts by people who are not um, the great men and polished thinkers of history because sometimes I think because those pe- the people who are not that are being direct, you get a much clearer view of what things were like, including all of the particularities, resentments and disharmony that have been part of every single political project throughout history?
1: Mm. Sir.
3: Uh, first off, thank you guys so much. Um, so, so my mind goes to, I live in Harlem and uh, I went to this exhibit at Columbia on Frank Lloyd Wright and his impact in the community. A lot of people know about his design work but don't know he designed some of the public housing uptown as well before he kind of got frustrated with, I I believe, it to be like the bureaucracy of city planning and his vision for what he imagined would be open land and, you know, single-story houses and realizing that vision couldn't come to fruition, so he moved elsewhere. And uh, one of the folks that was kind of helping curate the exhibit, um, he's a MacArthur fellow, uh, Damon Rich, who's an urban planner, he was saying, you know, when he came uptown to see the new expanded campus for the first time after having been deep in research, the first thing that came to his mind was uh, seeing public housing, literally a baseball throw away from this new space and thinking about the implication for violence. And it wasn't violence in the sense of public housing. It was violence in the sense of the structures that get created and built and imposed on kind of a more native community. And so when we talk about what's happening in the context of, of, you know, big glassy structures, like I think about what about the other side of that equation? What about the poverty that results as a as kind of a counterbalance? And I was wondering if you could speak to some of the implications of, of what the lens looks like from that side of the coin and where that kind of, creativity by necessity gets born out of or what you see in your work in terms of kind of where the innovation comes from in those contexts.
0: First off, that was an amazing comment. And I mean, architecture is a really weird art form because every other art form it doesn't inflict itself on you. Like, if you don't like a book, you can just close it. Like, if you don't like a painting, you can just be like, I'm not going to that gallery. But architecture, you're kind of forced to deal with it. Um, And a lot of modernist architects and contemporary architects have been real dicks about that. I think about uh, Le Corbusier wanting to bulldoze Algiers and, like, replace it all with uh, skyscrapers and fields, uh, you know, because of his vision. Yes, I, um, I absolutely... I mean, the truth is, like, in New York and in a lot of cities, no one is building stuff for anyone except the ultra-rich. It's not even, like, just poor communities. It's literally any communities that are not millionaires. Any communities that are not millionaires have no place in the neoliberal city, um, except maybe as, like, I don't know, people you can suck $5,000 of rent a month out of until they go broke and have to move somewhere else, you know? And... In terms of, like, creativity at at the margins, I, so, um, w- since I've been going back to Puerto Rico a lot, um, I, Puerto Rican, um, like, just the way people build their homes in Puerto Rico, and these are, like, you know, working class people, um, and these, they're, they're I mean, poor people, actually, by our standards, and the, a lot of them, these guys, they build their homes themselves, they're fucking awesome, they're beautiful, they are, like, they're colorful and gorgeous, and, um, I mean, they're, like, like sensuous. I mean, not in the way of sexy, but sensuous in the way that, like, your senses are pleased by them. You know what I mean? And detailed and human scale. And, like, I, I would hang out with these guys, like, in um, Comarillo. And, like, this old guy is showing me, like, how he poured all the concrete. And, like, you know, how he had, like, painted this part lime green. And how he had put, like, like, shiny stuff in the concrete. So it glitter. Just, you know, stuff like that. And it's, like, made to human tastes. And I was, like, if this was on mainland America... No one would think that poor people deserve to live like this. No one would think that poor people deserve to live in places that were beautiful. And it would even be seen as like almost embarrassing. Like, why does it have all these like columns and flowers and stuff on it? Like, why are the bars like in Starbursts? It's like, what what do you want to like be happy or something? That's lame. You know, it's so unmodern. And um, yeah, I I remember I was like just going around taking pictures of all these like amazing houses like working class people had built and being like, why can't we build as cool as them?
4: Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Absolutely. spot on again. Uh, it's, I'm just like nodding. I'm throughout yeah. your talk, I'm just nodding <laughs> here. Um, but yeah, the, thing, the Harlem. It's, it's it's and the architecture thing. It's so. I I live there, in East Harlem, um, and it's crazy because. You know, like in the, on a block with projects. And so there's cops in the block and there's the uh, omnipresence, nighttime bright lighting. And you talk like, uh, why is this here? Oh, because there's crime. It's like, well, why has it been here for the past three years, you know? <laughs> and so when I look at like the new Columbia, like building, that multi million dollar building in 25th or 26th, and when I look at those big, box crystal box columns that's like we have own this much land we make a rectangle and make it as many stories as possible like that's where the urban violence is happening those are the high crime areas you know and like all sorts of complicated financial crime is going on and it's <laughs> and it's Im- it's into it's, yeah it's transparent um and it's and i'm sitting i'm like i'm on the, the block where it's like the cops are there because of vague crime disturbances and so i'm like yeah there's this weird interaction of like architecture and urbanism and the people the rent-a-cops or the actual cops it's it kind of gets a little bit fuzzy up in harlem um like they're sort of what are they policing and so it's yeah i'm like actually really interested in, the, in like how in different ways this is a bit of a tangent different ways to visualize like white collar crime because it's so visual and it's increasingly the the vision of what this city is becoming like what it looks like uh.
1: right and it, it, and it has a direct effect on how the city manifests So, there's white collar crime will lead to what building gets built where and what red line we still use red lines what red lines are put where and who's segregated out
0: and, and the people who have to sort of launder the profits of their white collar crime from somewhere in the world buying lots of apartments that they keep empty just to you know keep their to park their money in it which is part of why we have a housing crisis where like we can't afford to live there
1: I, yeah. yeah. Oh God. Right. Yeah. 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 You know, but you know who's confronting these problems directly? The good people here at Civic Hall. <laughs> uh, so I want to thank Molly and Jace for joining us. You've been on Team Human coming to you from New York Civic Hall. Special thanks to Mika Sifri, Savannah Badalich, and everyone at Civic Hall for hosting us. Luke Robert Mason was our engineer. Josh is our community manager. You can support Team Human by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. Get premium content, the ability to ask questions on the show, sign copies of the upcoming Team Human manifesto, trading cards, and more. Team Human is produced by Stephen Bartolome. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Thanks.